4: Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
5: The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick.
4: (laughs) Dangerous mid-morning debate with the Great Dictator.
5: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. On the day you might be forgiven for thinking that the world has officially gone mad. We're all doomed apparently uh, according to several leading lights of modern society including Jeremy Hunt who seems to think that he wants to get out of Europe on uh, the 31st of October but he's not entirely sure if it's actually going to happen. Uh, according to David Attenborough or Sir David Attenborough if you prefer uh, he appeared before the Climate Change Committee yesterday like some kind of 21st century Joan of Arc warning of the dire consequences of going on holiday and driving cars to work. And he reckons attitudes to climate change are easily likened to the bad old days of slavery. Is the sainted one losing his marbles? He actually did admit, and you will hear him saying it on this very show, that he doesn't know what the future holds. But there's no point in pretending that we can't do anything about it. We have to believe that we can do something about it, which is not exactly the same as taxing the bejesus out of everybody in order to make sure that the climate is indeed saved. Of course, the chairman of the Climate Change Committee is no slouch either. He is Lord Deben, formerly Tory Cabinet Minister John Selwyn Gummer. He runs a whole series of eco-businesses, including the Sancroft International Consultancy on Sustainability, recycling company Valpac, Globe International, and one or two other climate-based charities. Marvellous, isn't it? He's making a very good living out of telling us all how to live and how we should be driving around in what sort of cars and what sort of holidays we should be taking. He reckons we need to drastically change our behaviour in the next year to save the planet. Would you please give me a small break? 0344 499 1000. Loads of you uh, are in agreement with me on this and I want to hear from all of you throughout the course of this show. Meanwhile, we've got a taste of what Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, would actually be like last night on the ITV debate. He clearly loves it when the audience is on his side. He gets quite carried away when they give him a bit of applause uh, which they mostly did give to him rather than to Jeremy Hunt. And he'd obviously rather be poking fun than answering real questions but he definitely gets my vote after three years of Theresa May. I'd accept Bozo the Clown, or Coco the Clown in his uh, position. Oh, three four 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 nine nine one thousand. 1000. Meanwhile, our tennis players seem to be getting a bit uppity, don't they? Don't like being asked the wrong kind of questions. Well, I've got some advice for Joe Conter. Do a bit more practicing next time, and maybe nobody will be asking you any awkward questions when you get to the final. Coming up, we'll also be finding out why goats are more emotional than you think they are, and why public schools aren't as good as everybody thought. Plus, we'll be chatting to the Donna Harvey in San Diego as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio.
5: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Loads of you have got an awful lot to say about David Attenborough. Sir David Attenborough in his appearance yesterday uh, before the Climate Change Committee, which is run by uh, formerly the Tory cabinet minister who shoved a hamburger down the front uh, of his uh, daughter's face, uh, basically trying to prove that CJD, Krebsfeld, Jakob disease uh, and mad cow disease were not in any way harmful to the general public. He now runs a whole series of climate-based charities. Uh, He also runs a whole series series of climate-based businesses, uh, he's probably making a fair amount of money out of this climate change nonsense. And he says that we need to change very, very rapidly the way that we behave in order to save the planet. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not buying it, but we'll get into that a little bit later on. Instead, let's talk about Boris Johnson. Let's talk about Jeremy Hunt. Let's talk about the debate last night with Chris Philp, Conservative MP for Croydon South. Chris, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. What did you make of it last night? I thought it was quite entertaining, to be honest.
6: Well, it certainly was, and you know, I think um, in particular Boris was positive, energetic, and quite dynamic. So yeah, I thought it made for quite good, um, quite good TV.
2: Yeah, I don't think Jeremy Hunt came out of it terribly well. I mean, amazingly, some of my compadres in the media seem to think that he won. I'm not quite sure which uh, hymn sheet they're singing from, but you know, he came across to me as a bit of a nasty character, slightly kind of um, odious, slightly kind of um, I don't know, poisonous maybe, and, and kind of one track minded about a lot of things. Well, I mean, I wouldn't uh,
6: characterize... I wouldn't use those words myself. Um, of course you but I think he did But he, I think he, he did obviously go on the attack. And I think a lot of people, you know, don't like um, negative campaigning. Uh, I think what people want is sort of a positive, optimistic vision, um, not attacking the other candidate. Um, but I think the main thing is that on the key issue, Brexit, um, Boris demonstrated, I think, that his energy, dynamism and optimism um, have a, you know, a, what people want to hear, want to see in the next leader, the next prime minister and I think the audience in the studio, but I think also the public more widely, kind of warmed to that.
2: And did we get a glimpse of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, albeit that he was very keen to point out that that's not what he was trying to do? Uh, But he clearly relishes the limelight. He loves it when people kind of encourage him, laugh at him um, and and kind of cheer him on. He seemed to become more galvanised whenever he felt like the public was on his side and he kind of went for it uh, part two, part three, part four, which I think will be quite an entertaining way to run the country.
6: Well, I think, I don't know, but I find personally that when you're talking to an audience and they they respond positively, obviously, you kind of, you know, draw energy from that and it gives you encouragement. I'm sure um, he's uh, just the same. And I think, you know, we've seen in our approach to Brexit and more generally over the last two or three years, a kind of steady um, safety first kind of approach, which unfortunately hasn't really worked no and a more energetic optimistic dynamic approach i think is probably what we now need and clearly boris offers that and hopefully it'll be successful in breaking the impasse that we're currently stuck in
2: yes quite and one of the things that uh, was interesting as a side issue last night there were quite a few little uh, sort of votes going on in parliament uh, about proroguing parliament there was amendments from dominic grieve here (laughs) there and everywhere um i mean it kind of went under the radar can you tell us what happened yeah, well, we were debating last night a, a what should have been quite a technical bill to, about
6: Northern Ireland, because at the moment the, the Northern Ireland executive is not sitting because Sinn Féin and the DUP can't agree. So there's effectively direct rule from Westminster um, also to, keep, to keep things running on a day-to-day basis while the Stormont Assembly gets back up and running. This bill was basically a technical bill to keep that going a bit longer. Um, but uh, various people tacked on amendments to the bill that did other things so for example um Stella Creasy and Connor McGinn tax on amendments which passed and which I voted for um to make uh, same-sex marriage legal in Northern Ireland if there's no assembly in a few weeks and to make um abortion the same in the Northern Ireland as it is in the rest of the United Kingdom so those were passed by big majorities but Dominic Grieve as you say the former Attorney General also taxed on a couple of amendments one of which was a sneaky attempt sort of backdoor attempt um to try and maybe not prevent, but at least make more difficult this idea of prorogation suspending Parliament. Um, And he did that by saying that every couple of weeks, um, starting, I think, in early October, the government had had to come to Parliament and make some report. And obviously, if Parliament's not sitting, then the government can't make a report to Parliament. So it's sort of a backdoor way of trying to stop or make prorogation more difficult. That amendment passed by one vote. I think from memory it was 293 in favour, 292 against. Yes. I was one of the 292 against. Um, So by a margin of just one vote, it squeaked through... I don't think it's a game changer. Um, It was a rather sneaky thing to do. And as I say, it was designed just to make prorogation just that little bit more difficult.
2: Yeah, interestingly enough, there's a report on Guido this morning about John Major, who apparently is threatening to go to court to try and stop Boris Johnson from suspending Parliament. Guido claims that uh, John Major himself prorogued Parliament uh, back in 1997 in order to delay the publication of the Cash for Questions uh, uh, scandal. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy out there. Well, um, I haven't
6: seen the report yet, and I I don't know whether it's true about the 1997 prorogation, but if it is true, it does make... I must admit, I I mean, I don't
2: remember that, but then again, I mean, that was, um, you know, there was a lot going on during that cash for questions thing, so uh, it may well be that that kind of slipped (laughs) under the radar as well. But, I mean, like a lot of things, Chris, we find ourselves as the electorate sort of slightly befuddled and bewildered by this raft of, of kind of legislation that apparently gets made, which is then declared to be apparently meaningless. What do you mean? Well, like when things get passed in Parliament and we get told, well, Parliament will not allow for a no-deal Brexit. And then on the other hand, we get told, well, actually, Parliament doesn't really get a say in that because the law says, legislation-wise, that actually we can have a no-deal Brexit if we want one. And then we hear stories about, well, you know, we may have uh, uh, members of Parliament voting to stop Boris Johnson from proroguing Parliament, but actually they can't do it. It's very confusing, I think, for a lot of people.
6: Yeah, it is. So, uh, I mean, I've, I've only been in Parliament for four years, and I'm, I'm still, you know, understanding all those different things. So there are different kinds of votes in Parliament. Some votes in Parliament are um, a sort of non-binding expression of opinion yes. by Parliament. And that vote um, a few months ago, uh, we voted on a whole range of options. One of them was a no-deal exit, and Parliament voted to say it didn't want a no-deal exit. Right. But that is a non-binding expression of opinion. Right. The, the, thing that bind, the thing that is legally binding and totally watertight is an act of Parliament. So mm. the thing we were debating last night, for example, is an act of Parliament. It becomes the law, and it's illegal to, to go against it. So you got to, when, you're, when people say Parliament voted for X or Y, you need to look at it and understand right. whether it was a non-binding motion yeah. or an act or actual law. So, so,
2: so are you telling me then that what happened last night which says we can't prorogue Parliament is binding, um, and the no-deal Brexit vote, which took place under the meaningful vote system, is not binding? Um, so, well, the, the, the vote last night um, was an act of parliament. It is binding, but it didn't say
6: proroguing parliament will not happen. Okay. It said it wasn't quite as clear as that. It said that the government has to report back every two weeks. Now, so it's, you know, it's kind of arguable as to whether prorogation is therefore <laughs> right. illegal because you can't so report we still back don't, it's a bit. So we still indirect.
2: don't. So we still don't really know. Is the bottom I,
6: line? I don't think it's that clear. I don't think last night's um, amendment is. It, although it's at law, um, I don't think the meaning of it is particularly clear cut no
2: okay so we're looking forward to uh, the voting taking place uh, even as we speak we've got the next big debate here actually at, uh, at news uk the sun and talk radio are hosting both boris johnson and jeremy hunt i think on the 15th so hopefully we'll see you there uh, are you looking forward to a place in boris johnson's cabinet chris if things go well i, I don't think i'll have a place in his cabinet um no
6: i'm just uh, you know happy to happy to support him support the government and try and get brexit sorted out and keep our economy going and uh, I'm not really thinking about uh, thinking about any jobs.
2: OK, good stuff. Other Chris, than the
3: jobs of the British people.
2: Of course. Chris, thank you very much indeed. Chris Philp, Conservative MP for Croydon South, backing Boris Johnson. Uh, he wasn't always backing Boris Johnson, but he is now. Um, and I think he should get a job in the Cabinet. He seems to have a pretty good handle on the way the public wishes uh, for the MPs of this land to proceed. But it really is very confusing, isn't it? Nobody knows what the hell's going on. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now I don't know about you, but I'm sick to death of this kind of laudatory, um, you know, praise that surrounds Sir David Attenborough. Turns up at Glastonbury Festival, declares it to be a plastic-free festival, which it clearly isn't. He gets a huge cheer. He's 93 years old. He's still getting paid a bucket load of money by the BBC, which, of course, is funded by you and I as the TV licence payers. He's doing another TV show at the end of this year, which involves such luminary prospects as us being told that there are apparently seven continents uh, and there are five oceans, which, of course, we knew anyway. He's going to all of them with a plane, with a film crew... Expanding his carbon footprint by hundreds and thousands of carbon tons, I would assume. Let's talk to Darren Grimes, uh, who's a Brexit campaigner, conservative commentator as well. uh, Because, I mean, Darren, are you as sick of all this as I am? I am, actually. And I mean, I've been tweeting about
1: this quite angrily this morning. Yeah. And I've been accused of being a climate denier. Well, of course you are. I'm a climate realist. Yes. You know, we need to get real about this. Comparisons
2: between plastics.
1: And the abolition of slavery, is he joking?
2: I know. I mean, it really is. But what I find extraordinary and astonishing is that he gets away with it because he's kind of this sainted character, as if he's always been brilliant all his life, as if, you know, he's stumbled upon a very successful way of making a career and he has become Mr. Kind of Blue Planet and all that. And lots of people like what he does. But he's no more of an expert on the climate than you or I.
1: Well, exactly, and it, it's the same with the sixteen-year-old Greta Thunberg. You know, she is held up as sort of Saint Greta, and whatever she says is taken as gospel. But they do not have expertise more more than your average bloke on the street. But then I'd, I'd also be wary for the reasons that you've mentioned about taking Lord Deben seriously. When you know you you've mentioned in your report earlier. That he's pocketing payments from green businesses to his family firm. Yeah, well, you I know, mean, I one, one, of, a- one
2: of the one of the charities in which he is involved, uh, which has got something to do with the the Ocean Conservation Society or something, he's got his son working there as well. Well, I, exactly. I mean, you've got to. So, look, I reckon climate change is actually happening, but we've got to look at
1: examples where there've been drastic measures taken, like this net zero target that Theresa made in a desperate attempt to shore up some form of legacy for ourselves. Denmark for example, they phased out and had the most radical decarbonisation targets of most major economies around the world right. and you know what's happened what's the happened? amount of co2 produced relative to the value of its imports has massively gone up Dan- danish heavy industry was simply offshored so any benefits of getting rid of its carbon and re- slashing its jobs for danes around well in factories etc is has gone out the yeah. window so you've got people without jobs for no reason whatsoever.
2: And you made a a very good point, Darren, in your tweet just before you came on this show to say you were coming on, that we hear all the time from, you know, remain campaigners that basically nobody voted to make themselves poorer, i.e. when they voted for Brexit. By the same token, as you quite rightly point out, nobody voted to have uh, zero emissions, zero net emissions in the carbon world from 2050 or 2030. When did we ever give that mandate out? Well, exactly.
1: No one voted for this. You know, I hope the next prime minister drops this green virtue signal. Signal, and to be honest with you, because I'm the trade-offs of it, of such an 68 and target, which it is. Because you know, net zero, that that is such a dr- drastic measure. I think we need to have a more c- sensible conversation about this. To be honest, because I think it, it's just getting totally mental. All these comparisons. David Attenborough saying that the industrial revolution, Britain's to blame. Mike, we're 1% of global yeah, CO2. Yeah,
2: exactly. But also, do you like the way they move the goalposts all the time? Because now that they've worked out that those of us who are not actually buying into this, when we say things like, why don't you go check out what's happening in India? Why don't you go check out what's happening in China? They then say, not only did we do we have a debt to repay because we started polluting the planet before they did, but they're also an awful lot of the reasons that China is polluting the planet is because they're making stuff for us. So we should pay for that as well.
1: Well, exactly. And I don't see how slashing, destroying jobs in this country and livelihoods in this country or, you know, hiking up the cost of flights for the poorest in society is going to help cut emissions in China and India. How, would, how the hell yeah. it that
2: way? Well, exactly. I mean, one of the reasons that India is at the moment so uh, polluting of the world is because more and more people have been taken out of poverty by commerce, they are becoming more wealthy, and they are now able to afford air conditioning units, right, like they are in America. So suddenly there's all these air conditioning units pushing Freon into the atmosphere. What are we supposed to do? Tell time to go back to living in poverty.
1: Well, exactly, and that's, that's exactly... You've hit the nail on the head because you, you look at the life expectancy... Before the Industrial Revolution, that was about 30. The reason why David Attenborough has lived such a long and healthy life and he could fly around the globe, Hector and all of us,
2: it's incredible. What about this John Selwyn Gummer, Lord Deben character, right? Now, this is the same guy you may not be old enough to remember who shoved a hamburger in his own daughter's mouth during the CJD uh-huh. mad uh-huh. cow disease outbreak to prove that there was nothing wrong with British beef. Now, this is clearly a man uh, who's not unhappy about sacrificing any member of his family for his political ambitions. This is a bloke uh, who's now telling us that the, the government is running the climate change scenario like Dad's army and that we need to make massive changes to our lifestyles in the next 20 Twelve months in order to save the planet—it's literally lunacy.
1: Well, it's all right for people like Lord Devon who can afford to take the hit. But what in his report he reckons that will be a one and two percent taken off our GDP per annum. He's the same bloke who'll argue against Brexit but doesn't give a damn when it's about climate change and, you know, every time a factory closes because we're ushering in targets that will inevitably close them. Yeah, They don't care about that. They don't care about people at the bottom because they'll be able to take the financial hit.
2: Exactly right. the hypocrisy I can't stand, Mike. Well, that's the point. And he runs something called Sancroft International, right? Now, this is how it describes itself. Sancroft is an international sustainability consultancy. We help some of the world's leading companies improve their environmental, ethical and social impact. You know, so that business that he is in is obviously benefiting from any more uh, and newer climate change kind of uh, legislation. He's the uh, chairman of this organisation. Uh, his, bro- his son, Felix, is a director, it would seem, of this organisation. Uh, I can't find any kind of uh, financials for them at the moment, so I can't tell you exactly how much money these people have paid. But this is a business, and the climate change business is getting bigger every month.
1: Of course it is, exactly. And w- meanwhile, Britain's few remaining manufacturing plants and steelworks are shutting up shop for good, whilst other countries continue to burn fossil fuels at a rate or not, yeah. just to put money in their pockets of these vested interests. I think we need to have a serious rethink of this stuff, because it's Totally mental. Mm.
2: But there isn't anyone, is there, in Parliament who's willing to stand up for you and I, Darren, the people who actually don't buy this, because even John McDonnell, you know, the world's most unreconstructed Marxist, is now jumping on the bandwagon saying that they're gonna delist from the London Stock Exchange any companies who are not green enough as far as the Labour government is concerned, if they ever get in, and they're gonna take them off the stock exchange. You know, they're just now appealing to all of these people they think want to save the planet.
1: Well, it's a new religion. It, it, it really is. You know, you, you kind of touch the stuff. Otherwise, you're a climate denier. You're an ignorant. You must be You must be being paid to say this right. stuff. Uh, but if you look around the world at the data, I mean, so the Soviet Union was hardly good with the environment. You know, the, all of the evidence suggests that it's capitalist economies who actually there is an incentive because the consumer can buy in to things if they want to buy in as more green, friendly solutions. So it's, it's capitalism that will come up with the solution to climate change, but we're not going to do that by ruining the lot for those at the bottom. The poorest people that the MPs in that gilded chamber in Westminster are supposed to be standing up for. So I think you're absolutely right. There is no-one standing up for the people who are likely to lose their jobs and livelihoods because of such drastic measures.
2: No, quite right. Now, let's have a listen to Sir David Attenborough because he was at the Climate Change um, Environmental Committee yesterday and he said this. I am
5: sorry that there are people who are in power and uh, in, in, internationally, uh, notably, of course, the United States, but also in Australia, which is which is extraordinary, actually, because Australia is already facing uh, having to deal with some of the most extreme manifestations of climate change.
2: Is he going to come back on?
5: Nobody thought that human beings could change the climate. Um, I mean, oh, now know we are. Um, and, and what is worse, of course, is that we are changing the climate in a way that's irreversible. If the world climate change goes on as it is, we are going to be facing huge problems with immigration. Uh, Af- large parts of Africa will become even less inhabitable than they are now. And now. We can, cannot be uh, radical enough in dealing with, with the issues that faces us at the moment. I have no idea uh, what the future holds. Okay. Um, I, I see no future in being pessimistic because that leads you to say, then, to hold it, why should I care? And I believe that way a disaster lies. So I, I feel an, ob- ob- an obligation. It's the only way you can get up in the morning. is to believe that actually we
2: can do something about it. See, old Attenborough, right, he says, quite frankly and quite clearly there, Darren, he doesn't know what the future holds. He also says, I have to believe that we can do something to change it. So even he's not convinced that whatever we do will make any difference. And that's, I think, where you and I are. Well, he says he says there's no he, he, there's no point in
1: being pessimistic. Yes. Yet he calls for the most drastic solutions right. that will take us back to an era when we were crawling around in our own dirt. You know, the prescription by these people is that you cannot eat meat, you cannot fly, you cannot drive your car, but you can if you're wealthy enough to afford it. And if, look, you mentioned the uh, elections in Australia. Mm. The reason why the conservative, the Liberal Party in australia did so well was because the labour party was pandering to all of these green lobbies and people were worried about losing the jobs look at paris you've got the gilets jaunes protesting en masse because of this diesel tax that would hit the poorest in society there are solutions out there we need to invest in in the technology and it give incentives tax breaks to those who are coming up with the solutions to tackle climate change, but we don't tackle it by making people lose the jobs and livelihoods. This is madness.
2: It really is, but what are we going to do, Darren? Because, you know, we've got the Green Party making inroads into various places like the European Union. Uh, the European Union is about as green uh, as, as my Jaguar, to be honest, but then they still tell everybody else that they have to be very, very much greener. You know, we are being told by our own government that we have to cut back. We've got a in London, uh, who's trying to make it impossible for anybody to go anywhere on anything but a bicycle, and you can't burn any wood because that apparently is going to damage everything. You know, we have somehow allowed this to happen, haven't we? We need to talk about the evidence. You've mentioned diesel. Diesel fuel might emit less CO2,
1: but we now know that it produces considerably more toxic gases than petrol. And then you mentioned uh, as well, we were burning... Uh, ba- palm oil for biofuel all of these things that we were told were renewable solutions so the evidence is there that when we act too hastily we we'll make the wrong decisions and it hurts people harder than it would have done yeah. had we actually took the time to look at the evidence and work things out so people like me and you just need to make the case that the government's waved this through without any democratic mandate and that will be the surest way to lose public support for climate policy so let's take a step back let's actually look at the evidence and let's come up with a sensible solution that yes. doesn't hit the poorest in this country
2: hardest. I absolutely could not agree with you more. Darren, great to talk to you. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more in the future. Uh, Darren Grimes, clearly a fellow traveller of mine. Judging by your reaction on Twitter, by the way, uh, to a tweet that I put out last night, many, many more of you are on my side on this than they are on Sir David Attenborough's side. Sir David Attenborough is not a climate change expert. I'm not claiming to be one either, but what I am claiming to be is someone who doesn't trust politicians who want to rinse us for more money on the basis that they claim it's going to save the planet. Well, it's not going to save the planet. The planet isn't dying. There is no emergency. Everything's going to be just fine, honestly.
5: The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals.
4: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham
5: on Talk Radio.
2: of Republic of Mike Graham, you know what to do, 03444991000. The resignation alarm went off a little bit earlier on because Sir Kim Darroch has now resigned as UK ambassador to the United States of America. Uh, What we now have to wait and see is whether or not Boris Johnson or whoever is the next prime minister, which is probably Boris Johnson, uh, gets to decide who gets to be uh, the next ambassador to uh, the United States of America. Is it in fact going to be Theresa May or will she uh, wait until the new appointee is sitting firmly in Downing Street I would bet you uh, my bottom dollar that Boris Johnson will argue very very strongly that it should be him uh, now of course what you might want to ask then is whether or not the next ambassadors the United uh, States of America uh, will in fact have gone to Eton because there's a big campaign on the go uh, called Abolish Eton and we're going to speak now to Holly Rigby uh, one of the Abolish Eton uh, campaign coordinators because she would like to abolish Eton I presume Holly very good uh, afternoon to you
4: hi good, uh, good afternoon
2: it's not just Eton, is it you want to abolish but surely because i'm actually going to agree with you but probably for different reasons i want to abolish all uh, private schools in this country because i've always thought that they skew society in such a way and make uh, a difference between rich people and poor people uh, or just even rich people and average people and, and uh, they don't serve any useful purpose other than to uh, to sort of separate us
4: Yeah, well, we would absolutely agree with that. And our campaign is actually called Labour Against Private Schools. Right. um, And we're using the Twitter handle Abolish Eton, partly because we've kind of been spurred into action um, by the fact that Boris Johnson is about to become the 20th British Prime Minister who was educated at Eton. Um, But we do think that there is a broader point to make about the way that a kind of elites uh, reproduce themselves uh, through our school system at the sure. moment.
2: I mean, it's probably fair to say that a lot of those uh, Eton-educated prime ministers were quite a long time ago, weren't they? Because not every prime minister in recent times has come from there.
4: Well, I mean, uh, Boris Johnson is now going to be the second in four years because we had David Cameron a very brief time ago. So I would say that this is still very, very much um, a live issue. Um, And actually, let's look at the Tory leadership contest. You've got Boris Johnson from Eton versus Jeremy Hunt at Charterhouse they look at the Brexit party and you've got Nigel Farage who came to be you know man of the people was educated at a very posh private school in South London so actually I think it is really important yeah. still even yeah, at but the you moment. See, I,
2: you see that's is where I differ from you because I wouldn't go after people just because they've been educated at these very posh schools because it's not their fault they got sent to posh schools they probably didn't get asked about it when they were you know 10 years of age or seven years of age and they went to prep school and all of that and and is there not a danger if you're coming at it from that perspective that you're going to be labeled um just sort of nasty people on the Left side of politics, you don't like people on the right?
4: Well, no, what I would say is that actually, um, in some ways, you're right. Obviously, you don't get to choose um, what school you go to, but what's important is that uh, what political choices that you make once you're in a position of power. And um, Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt have been part of a Conservative government for the last um, however many years, well, they've been in-, in government for the last nine years, and they have been cutting state secondary schools like mine to the absolute bone, cutting funding, cutting teachers um, and we are now struggling even to keep a basic level of education going for the children that I teach in my state school in, in, in London. So they don't seem to be showing that they have any interest whatsoever in the children of majority of people who go to state schools in this country and they also clearly still very much support the continued existence of their own schools. Um, so, you know, I think that it's up, to, it's up to what you do when you're in a position of power and they've shown that they are still very committed to this uh, sort of reproduction of privilege, I
2: think. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. However, how do you go about changing it, though? Because it is something which is kind of goes back to as long ago as, as, as the days of empire in this country, and presumably and one of the reasons that, that, that these private schools started up was because they were supposed to be for people who were posted abroad. That was the original idea of it, wasn't it? And they were called public schools because, in fact, they were not religiously based in particular. And they've also become magnets now for people from foreign countries. I mean, most of, um, uh, if not 50%, of of, of the people at Eton now have got parents who live abroad?
4: Well, actually, the the reason that um, Eton was established and some of these um, bigger, kind of older schools is that actually they were um, charitable institutions that had uh, money allocated to them to educate poor boys that's why they were set up they were set up to educate kind of bright and talented poor boys in the local area um, and actually that they have moved so far from that now that nobody could claim that they were a charity anymore i think that it's only there is only um one percent of students at Eton are on a hundred percent scholarship so we would say, well, you know, first thing we would do, absolutely, remove the charity status. I don't think anybody anywhere can think that, that these schools are any longer a charity, which means that they would have to pay business rates. You know, at the moment, private schools don't pay any business yeah. rates at all. Which is so crazy, pay, isn't it? Yeah.
2: I mean, how yeah. do they justify, I mean, how does the Charities Commission even justify calling them charities? <laughs> uh,
4: well, it's because they, um, it, it is because they say, well, we give bursaries or we lend our playing fields out and things like that. But what we say um, with the Labour Against Private Schools campaign is actually we we don't just want the crumbs off your table. Actually, we need a a radical redistribution um, of the uh, historic endowments that were supposed to be for poor children and now are not used um, effectively. um, And the kind of vast, luxurious, properties and um, that these schools uh, site, uh, that these schools are based in actually should be for the use of, of the many in this country yeah. who, who deserve to have access to
2: them. And don't you also think that, that society would benefit massively, this is kind of more where I'm coming from on this argument, if everybody had to go to the same school? if You know, I would be yeah. more than happy for there to be selection and I'd be more than happy for there to be grammar schools and, and, and to go back to a system where you stream kids. I don't mind doing that. But what I think is much better is for people from all Walks of life from all different areas of, 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 of income to mix together because otherwise you end up ghettoising people in, in both rich and poor areas and it's it's nonsense isn't it?
4: Yeah absolutely and I think you see that in our society today. I don't think that anybody um, who is currently running the country really has any sense of what it is like um, to live here. I mean Boris Johnson was asked what the national minimum wage was, and he had no idea because mm. he, ha, wh- when has he ever interacted with someone on minimum wage unless they're staff that he's ordering around? And and actually, when you have a, comp- a comprehensive school system when uh, where children um, of all different rate, ages and faiths and nationalities uh, mix together, we know that that makes a, a more cohesive society. Uh, the only other thing I would say is that we are quite clear that we get we are against elitism, hierarchy and selection in all its forms. Um, We don't think that you should separate children by ability either, because actually we know from research that children learn better together when they are in mixed ability groups, um, and that fosters social cohesion also.
2: Well, maybe. That's an arguable point, which we haven't got time to get into. What about Jeremy Corbyn? (laughs) Is he backing your campaign? Because he went to quite a good school, didn't he?
4: Well, he went to a um, he went to a private primary school and then he was went to a state school for for secondary. He went three. to a grammar school though, didn't he? Uh, in no, Shropshire,
2: I, I thought he went to a grammar uh... school in Shropshire.
4: Well, what I do know about Jeremy Corbyn is that he actually um, got divorced over the issue of whether to send his son to a grammar school. He was so adamant that he didn't want his son to go to a grammar <laughs> school that he apparently is one of the reasons why he got divorced. So we know It's a bit harsh, he, isn't it? So because yeah. I can't agree on where to <laughs> send
2: you as my child, I'll just leave yeah. your mother.
4: right Well, I mean, I don't know on whose side on whose side they felt more strongly about. Yeah. What I do know about Jeremy is that. Um, He is 100% and totally committed to comprehensive schooling. He's always been a a brilliant champion um, of comprehensive schooling. He spoke recently um, at a big meeting in London about why we need more funding in our schools. So I know that he is committed to this, and we certainly hope, and we will certainly be trying at some point to talk with Jeremy and sitting down with him and also with Angela Rayner of course who is the education sec- uh, shadow education secretary yeah. um, and yes we very much hope they'll back the campaign OK
2: well we'll see if that happens at uh, conference happily uh, we shall see you there hopefully if all goes well thanks very much uh, indeed that's Holly Rigby one of the abolish Eton campaign coordinators uh, she's also a state secondary school teacher I take her point uh, and I know that she's very um, uh, passionate about it I just worry slightly that this is not so much about abolishing private schools and making everybody equal It's more about punishing the rich. And that, for me, is never a good reason to do anything.
4: Dangerous mid morning debate with the great dictator.
2: The independent republic of Mike
5: Graham on Talk Radio. 0344-499-1000.
2: Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Not an awful lot of time to take all your calls, but we will get as many in as we can do. Uh, we're going to go straight away to David, who's in Milton Keynes, who wants to talk about private schools. David, very good uh, afternoon to you. Uh, good
7: afternoon. Thanks for having us on.
2: No, not at all. What do you want to tell us? Um, the
7: uh, the last caller, uh, or the caller before that, um, who is you know wants to abolish private schools. Yeah. Um, it's. I. I think people need to look at the bigger picture because, I mean, when when you say words like elitism and, and the super rich and things like that, um, I'm I'm a plumber by trade. Okay. Um, not on a very big salary. My wife's a travel agent, not on a very big salary, and we've had to sacrifice everything, including my BT sports, which I'm really upset about. Okay. So we can send our child to private school, which is going to start in September. Now. I'm, the reason that we're sending them there is because the, the local schools near us are just simply too dangerous to go to. Okay. Um, the education level is not up to standard. Um, some of the kids that I meet nowadays, they can't read or write properly because the funding, like what you mentioned, the funding is not, not actually going towards the schools that right. it should be. Now, I'd love my kids to go to a state school. But they also mentioned about the diversity as well. When I went into a induction day um, the all the parents inside that room, that was the most diverse room I've probably ever been in in this country. Okay. Um, so there is, there is, I, I, I think people need to get off the elitism because there's a lot a lot of parents yeah. out there that I think are sacrificing a lot to put their child. Listen I, t- I, 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 totally,
2: I totally get where you're coming from, David. Is it secondary school you're sending your son to?
7: No, no, it's, um, he starts reception, so
2: he's, he's going to be four. So this is a primary school? Yeah. So you're telling me the primary school that is your local primary school in Milton Keynes is not safe?
7: No, I don't think they
2: are. Really? That's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, that's the problem, though. I mean, I, I totally respect your right to do it, and I would never argue that you shouldn't have the right to do it while the schools are there. I just happen to believe that as long as we have private schools in this country the state schools will never be as good as they should be and could be. Because if we didn't have private schools, I just think that everybody would have to go to the same school and that way the parents who, who really care, like you, would be putting their kids into a state school and would be raising the level of competence of the teachers. You would be you would be asking for much more from them than maybe they get asked at the moment. And parents like yourself would be in the system and therefore the system would improve.
7: The state... The, the... The state school, they argue that they are on level playing field with the private schools. That's what they say. They mm. say that they can educate your child just as much as a private school can. And when they come out with comments like that, politicians are going to go, OK, all that's fine. Yeah. You're OK. Right. Uh yeah. no no actually we're not we're not we're not we we need the funding mm. you know yeah. so they 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 need to admit to themselves that they need help more help than what yes. they're actually yeah. Well I know, mean receiving. you know
2: just on funding and and on numbers alone your kid will have a smaller classroom uh, more attention more personal um uh, sort of uh, uh in- involvement and 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 relationship uh, funding than anything else than you would ever get in a state school you know I suppose maybe I'm just a little bit um um, in cloud cuckoo land here, which I don't mind admitting, because obviously people like yourself are up and down the country and you are probably keeping the private schools going much more than the very elite people are in Eton, you know. But you're going to be spending an awful lot of your money in the next, you know, 10, 15 years then on education for your son. Yeah.
7: You know? Yeah, and which which, I, which I'm really upset about, Yeah. Is- it, it, it's it's a lot of money and you shouldn't um,
2: and you shouldn't have to david that's my point i guess i suppose my point would also be we're all paying into the tax system we all get taxed we all pay quite a lot of tax into a system and we are entitled to expect the education system run by the state to be fit for purpose and if it's not that's not right yeah and i think i
7: think everyone can agree that that not every school is is, is up to scratch. Not every state school is up to scratch. No, I think that's absolutely um,
2: right. Some are. And I,
7: I, I, bet, I bet there are state schools out there that are better than private educated schools, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a catchment area. I mean, the school system... I mean, I, I go to people's houses um, and it, you know, in the morning and, and I have to work round mm. the school run. Um, and the school runs are taken up to an hour because you've got children who are one year apart from each other going to different schools. Yeah. Um, because of, uh, because of some sort of catchment area, and and that must be difficult on a parent. You start work at nine o'clock, you get your kids to school at eight eight thirty. What one do you drop off? Yeah,
2: first? exactly. <laughs> no, I mean we, we we've had that. I've had that problem where we had to end up having one kid going with somebody else's parents because that was the only way it could work. You had two different kids going to two different schools. Well, it's a great call, David. You are basically the the, the kind of person. Um, that the state school should be attracting, but which the state school is abandoning instead. And David's having to spend a far bigger portion of his income and his wife's income than he should to have to pay double, effectively, tax and extra money for an education. It's shocking. Michael is in Derbyshire. Hello, Michael. Oh, hi, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. You're a former headmaster.
8: Absolutely. And let me tell you something. Holly O'Rigby doesn't know what she is talking about. I'm a working-class boy, but became a headmaster of an independent school. Right. This girl that you've just been speaking to, who effectively wants to abolish these outstandingly brilliant schools, there's no question about that. Forget about elitism. And in any event, what is wrong with being elite? If you have potential, you should should make sure that you're going to be in an environment to achieve that potential. There is so much claptrap talked about the independent sector. Uh, I've taught in both the maintained sector, which is state schools, and the independent sector. There are some appalling teachers in the state system. Uh, and I have to tell you, many parents, there's only 7% of people go to an independent sector. Many of those parents make tremendous financial sacrifices to give their children the very best chance in life. Mm. They are not all millionaires. They are not all wealthy. They are ordinary people who obviously prize education, and want to give their children the best possible. Holly Rigby hasn't got a clue. She's politically motivated, and she wants to destroy something which it, we should all in this country be outstandingly proud of. True. Because most of these institutions, Mike, and I should say I agree normally with you, 80% of your philosophy on life and your uh, debates about everything right. you mention on your programme, I agree 80% of what you say. But on this subject, this woman... Got OK, well, let me <laughs> let me <laughs> just
2: put one thing to you, Michael, and, and I'm very happy that you agree with most of what I say, but I like it that you disagree with me on some things because that's what we want to do here. But wouldn't it be better, and I know it may sound a bit fantastical uh, and maybe a bit sort of imagin- imaginary, if we could have a state school system only so that the state school system was fit for purpose, so that all of the people who... Because I believe that if the parents care enough, the school gets better... And, and you'll know that from the from the private sector, but if we had a state school system which was fit for purpose and where everybody had to go because there was no private uh, state edu- private education, would that not be better?
8: Of course it would and I agree with you one hundred percent that uh, i I not agree with you know uh, the criminal Tony Blair much of what he said but when he said education education yes of course of course we should have the finest education system in the world uh But sadly, we're never going to achieve that. That is utopia. It is, I'm afraid, a fiction, unless you can persuade politicians to, A, weed out the appalling teachers that, for some strange reason, manage to get qualified. It's not really a profession. Uh, You know, it's the easiest profession to get into is the teaching profession, when it should be the hardest, because they are looking after the most precious thing we have Mm. our young people. And I have to tell you, Uh, Holly Rigby sounded to me like someone she's ill-educated herself, she is politically biased, and she wants to destroy something that she knows nothing about whatsoever, otherwise she wouldn't be spouting such nonsense.
2: Well, it's very well put, Michael. I, I can't find myself disagreeing with much of it, to be honest. I think she is, of course, politically motivated, because all she wants to do is go after the Eton boys. Let's talk to James in Pinner, who wants to talk about climate change. Hi, James. Uh, hi, hang on. Uh, How hey, are you? Hey, I'm Sorry. very
3: well. What do you want to say? James? I was never, I'm fine. Um, I wanted to just yeah go come back to the climate change agenda and just basically say, um, in uh, a few years ago, I was actually working uh, in Europe um, within the European Union in the energy industry, which is my speciality. Right. And um, um, one of the deals that was done at the time was that Theresa May signed the um, strike price agreement. On behalf of the British government to bring Hinkley Point online, which is obviously the French uh, EDF um, facility, she signed a a deal which would supply electricity at a guaranteed price of 92.50 per megawatt hour, when the current price equivalent is less than 40. Uh So she's already she's already signed a deal which is going to give us more than 100% increase in our price of electricity. And I think this little um, little um, tryst that she's played. Uh, in the last couple of weeks. She's really trying to create the burning bridge to support what she's already done. But there's a a second point I want to just make to it, because I don't think people really pick this up if you sort of pull the curtain back to see the wizard on this. Um, In Europe in particular, you've got this thing that they call sort of comparative advantage where different countries, and the European Union orchestrate this, different countries have their specialisms, and the two specialisms in energy... Obviously, you've got Germany specialising in, in renewables and France specialising in, uh, in nuclear. Yeah. And so they are basically taking that forward. There's others that do it, obviously, outside the EU, America, Japan in particular. But what's going on is that the whole thing is being carved up and being taken on a, on a global agenda. And behind that, you've got, you know, because that's creating an industry for us. And then in the city, you've got big pension funds that are invested into these funds that are just purely focused on renewable energies and things like that, right. the 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 whole structure behind it is uh, on a global basis and touches everywhere because everyone sees this as a as going to be the money maker over the next fifty years. So, um, so we're, we're all
2: plugged years- into this uh, renewable nonsense, basically.
3: Well, we are, and they go. You know, I I mean, you're probably a bit like me. You know, I, I looked at the NASA curve that they all refer to and go, look, this is what it's been doing over the last. 150 years. And I looked at it more carefully and I went, hold on a minute. It flatlines between 1940 and 1980. And if you're talking about, you know, that period, which is probably one of the most industrialising periods Mm. that we've had in the West, why would it be flatlining? If you think it's all down to, man, you know, the big spike is man-made contribution. Yeah. It just doesn't stack. just doesn't
2: stack. It up doesn't. It really doesn't. Well, listen, James, well, we're returning to this theme. Thank you very much for your call and for your expertise because it's been a fascinating show this morning. And, of course, we even got to play out the resignation alarm. So, Kim Darroch, no longer uh, the US ambassador uh, from the United Kingdom. We'll see if we can pick a better one uh, coming up tomorrow from 10 o'clock right here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham.
4: Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic